This time, who's writing the ground rules for the next defence review? Destroyers in the docks, can they be fixed? Historical allegations in Northern Ireland, it's not over yet. And remembering the first presenter of SITREP. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. This year, there's to be a major defence review. It will be big enough to reshape the British defence policy. This means the Ministry of Defence will have the opportunity of telling the government what is needed to back it up. But as ever, there are disagreements about what is needed. I'm joined by defence analyst Francis Chuser and Christopher Lee. Francis, um, already reports of disagreements from the different sides, but that's inevitable, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Any defence review uh, over the past, what, 30, 40 years, it's never been optimistic. It's always been doing less, uh, well, more with less or less with even less than that. And so we are starting to see the rats fighting in the sack. And what are the rats fighting over so far? Um, We are seeing uh, issues like the carriers. Do they get sold off? Uh, Does the amphibious capability go? Um, you then have to start thinking quite uh, radically, which apparently the ominous grease uh, for Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings is doing. Do you, for example, only buy 60 F-35 Joint Strike Fighters so the RAF don't get any? Um, do you get rid of all the heavy armour in the army? Do you bin the Apache fleet? All of these things, I would say, are up for grabs. And Christopher Lee, the MOD has a record of bad budgeting and wasting billions on overrun projects. Is this a Whitehall myth or is the MOD as bad as some would say? I think it's as worse. It's worse than some would say, actually. In what way? Uh, Well, if you go back, let's say, I don't know, to the 80s, when uh, Michael Heseltine, now Lord Heseltine, became Defence Secretary, he walked in and he said to the then uh, uh, Permanent Secretary, uh, how many departments do I have? Because we seem to have badges and payments for all sorts of things all over the place. And they said, about 157. So he said, put them up on the wall because Lord Heseltine, being dyslexic, couldn't re- read a report on this. And they found that there wasn't one that was being operated sensibly in, 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 the financial, in the financial state. So he brought in a man who was running, I think, Marks and Spencer at the time, uh, Peter Levine. And he should have been able to fix it because he had the perfect plan. But everybody got in his way. And then you begin to see the beginnings of the problem that people in the defence ministry have always got our but minister. That's a very brave decision if you take it. They have got that sort of... Yes. They got that thing. They're stopping it. They're their own worst enemy. And yeah. then you put a, then you put say an officer on a desk, and he's there for three years. And they said about the ship that you're designing, he wants to add to it. He wants to move his career along with it. So, uh, don't always blame the civil servants. Blame quite often blame the military as well. And what do you think, Francis Chuser, of the? Absolute, absolutely correct. It's um, the biggest problems at the moment. Sadly, stem from the services. Uh, where do you want to start? Um, changing requirements, over-budgeting, over-specifying the black holes, and by the way, there are about eight different black holes, stem overwhelmingly from service decisions. So, to Francis, do you think uh, that Boris Johnson's advisor, Dominic Cummings, is the man to shake things up? Do you think he will have an impact, or a, a potentially good one? He will definitely have an impact. I think that goes without saying. Um, it then depends where you start from. If you want, as apparently the Chief of the Defence Staff has said, a review that starts from procurement, equipment, all this sort of area, that 
Dominic Cummings is not going to go for that because, uh, as just said, he is a disruptor. He does not come from a conventional defense background and he will not view things through those lenses. And I think we are going to have a really rocky, but interesting, from my point of view, six months watching uh, the immovable um, object of the MOD faced with Dominic Cummings. So, Chris, will go on? Uh, true. I, I, was, I went, went along to Sandhurst, uh, I was about 10 years ago, and there was a discussion on how you would sort of reform the defence ministry. It was part of the series of these sort of company commanders who really were switched on as they pretended to be. Um, and one of them got up and said, well, well it's interesting, isn't it, that the defence ministry uh, is sort of is full of the people that actually do it, like service people, and the foreign office is the only other ministry. Wouldn't it be a good idea to clear out all the service people from the defence ministry? How did that go down? Uh, well, there was a lot of people supported it, um, but he reckoned he'd finished his career by actually saying that. I don't think he had, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, it's an interesting thought. Makes, it's that, makes sense. It's got to be that sort of thinking. What the problem with the Defence Ministry is twofold. One, it doesn't actually know what it's supposed to be doing, and probably the Defence Ministry is going to have to be doing other things with the forces it's got, say, in, in 10 years' time, than it's doing now, a radical change. The second thing, there is no big idea in the Defence Ministry. There's no big thinking. Nobody says, this is what we're going to do. And it's partly one of the reasons they're not quite sure who the enemy is supposed to be. It's no longer the state. It's no longer, you know, the Russians are coming. Well, Look act out. Actually, well, actually, Pierre on Pierre is back. But to take what you just said, um, Chris, I would say any defence review has to start with two fundamental premises. The first one is stop pretending there isn't a problem with money. There is. There is a massive problem, and there is no reasonable budget uh, outturn which will cure it. The second one is, this perhaps more controversial, the UK is not a global power and cannot be a global power under any reasonable budget projection. So stop trying to buy capability we can't afford. So let's talk timescales. Um, Christopher, this is supposed to be delivering this defence review by the autumn, is that right? Well, that's an idea, yeah, but let's let's put it in, in, a, in another context. When do you, if you think you've got a problem, as we've been talking about it, and you know, we've got, uh, we got the wrong forces, because we're not quite sure what we're going to be using them. The idea that we've got two aircraft carriers and a force projection is laughable in some ways when you consider the sort of things that we're able to do. You can't even find enough people, sailors to go in those sh uh, ships to actually drive them. So therefore, timescale is where are the big, big numbers that we're going to think that we're going to have to head for? Do we need to have this resolved in five years? Can we come up with a plan which says in five years you must be doing this, uh, the whole sort of thing? I mean, we can't even solve knife crime. Never, never mind solving the biggest problem uh, of all. And for example, who is going to be brave enough to overturn the Mike Quinlan uh, sort of view of uh, nuclear deterrence? Who is going to be brave enough to say, listen, truthfully, we do not need Trident anymore? Sounds like you, Christopher. <laughs> uh, I think probably, I think <laughs> Mr. Tusa probably uh, more so. Well, uh, the, the answer is no one. Um, I will make a, a very possibly controversial prediction. Um, this current defence review will have to be m much more like 2010. Remember, 2010, they Vicious. cast the carriers. They, yeah, but it's because it was the uh, range of ambition was unaffordable. Uh but 
all the cuts, they said, we will build them back when we can afford them. And when so did they I come do back that to the before? Point, 1981, uh, June 1981, yeah. uh, and that was partly the result of that was the Falklands, uh, Falklands War. Okay, we'll leave it there yeah. for the moment. Francis Chuser, thank you very much for your time today. Now, major upgrades to stop total power failures on the Royal Navy's Type 45 destroyers will begin within months, according to Defence Minister Baroness Goldie. She's told peers in the House of Lords that work will start on the first ship this spring, but it will take several years before all six have been fixed. My Lords, the first Type 45 destroyer will begin receiving power improvement project upgrades in spring 2020 and will be returning to sea trials in 2021. And our £160 million investment in the power improvement project will provide increases in both power generation capacity and reliability for the rest of the service life of the Type 45 destroyers. It is planned that all six Type 45 ships will have received this upgrade by the mid-2020s. Well, that statement was in response to a question from the for- former First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West, who joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Lord West. Are you happy with that Minister's response? Um, not really. I'm, I'm delighted that uh, we're now going to rectify this fault, but we knew about the fault some eight years ago. Um, we'd re- found out the way we were going to resolve it some five years ago. Uh, three years ago, we said, right, we must place a contract for this. I don't know why for the delay. Uh, and as I said in the house, quick as a flash, nothing has happened. And we're now in 2020. And part of the reason, of course, is we only have six of these ships and, and we only have 13 other frigates. And poor First Sea Lord is frantically wrestling with these ships to try and let them still do some of the things our nation needs. And I'm afraid what that means is, should there be a shooting war suddenly, we are putting a Type 45 in a position where there is a possibility at the moment critique, it has a total power failure, it'll be restarted again within a matter of seconds, but it would lose all its weapon systems, everything for that that short period. So just remind Uh, us what the problem is with the Type 45 exactly. It's basically a a power problem to do with providing steady, constant power. And the problem relates to the gas turbines uh, and the diesels and to how the two link with each other and the the piece of kit that actually does that. And they were designed to sort of gracefully deteriorate the the, the gas turbines. But what we found is there's a sudden, dramatic, uh, catastrophic uh, deterioration. That's where the problem lies. Now, there are lots of other little problems. And we've ruled all those out and done things about it with the EIP. But this main one, which comes under a category of a thing called a PIP, we haven't done. And when I warned three years ago we could end up fighting and this might happen, lo and behold, Defender is in the Straits of Hormuz. And two weeks ago, it came within an ace of there actually being a hot war there. And there will be a hot war. And you, when you've got a problem with so few assets, you need to sort them out quickly. And why does it just take so long? Well, part of the problem is they can't just slot them straight in to get the work done, not least because they're using them. Defenders out there in the Gulf, you know, there are other ones who have been doing other things in the Mediterranean, tasks that are there all the time. And we have too few ships Mm. and we haven't got enough money to throw money into the yards to get this work done really quickly. Um, and to run them through. So there's a, a difference of balancing it all. That's the problem. On that note, then, I, I presume you agree with another former First Sea Lord, Lord Boyce, who described the numbers of destroyers and frigates as anorexic. 
A- absolutely. And we, you know, we've been banging on about this now for some time. And the government just doesn't seem to do anything about it. So when um, you, sorry to interrupt you, when you were first Sea Lord, you had to assess future naval requirements. If you were doing that today with the complexities of the future threats, what do you think were the good buys and the bad ones? Well, I, I'm, I think, I mean, I, I'd probably put it in a different way because it's quite tricky to sort of... So I, I learned this years ago. You don't say which one of your wife's wheels is the least preferred. <laughs> if you say that, she said, oh, you never told me you didn't like it. You'd never get it again. So... So no, I mean what I would what I would say is that it was very clear to me that we needed a, a force that was capable of deploying and looking after UK interests around the globe, fourteen dependencies worldwide, uh, global shipping which is still run from the UK. Interestingly, when there's a possibility of a fight, many nations reflag their ships to UK. Uh, to the UK because we can look after them. We're a permanent member of the Security Council, the largest European investor in the Far East, in South Asia, and the Pacific Rim. You know, we need to look after these things. And to do that, you need a deployable force, which means the carriers, mm. amphibious shipping, because that's the way you can put pressure on people. And then you need the escorts, the destroyers and frigates, to enable you to look after them and also do the myriad of other tasks that our nation demands. Of Lord West, Navy. our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is in the studio here with me as well. I'm just thinking one, one, one point raised here. Type 45s, uh, unless you have enough, you get into a position we're in at the moment... The Royal Navy has six Type 45s. One of them is in the Persian Gulf. The rest are in Portsmouth. Um, well, certainly one of them is laid up alongside because of manpower issues. Um, I think three of them are operationally ready. I don't, I don't know exactly today exactly what the state of them is. But, of course, we have only got six, and that's not enough. We were meant to have 12. Uh, it was whittled down from 12 to 8. And then it was from eight to six. Uh, and the, the eight to six was because within the MOD, people said, oh, you've got to get enough money to develop the Type 26 programme. You look at the Type 26 programme, quick as a flash, when do we get the first ship? I think another seven years. Mm-hmm. I and mean, the whole programme is ludicrously long, as Admiral Boyce said in the Lords the other day. I mean, it's unbelievable. We've only ordered three, and the timescales are, are mind-boggling. We are paying BA Systems to run a shipyard and not to actually produce ships for us. So, L- Lord West, do you think the First Sea Lord is ever going to be happy? Oh, I think First Seals always want more ships than they, they probably need. But Did I think you want more ships than you needed? <laughs> Did you want more I, ships? Well, I, what I didn't want to do was to pay off the ships I had at the rate they did, and I didn't also, and I wanted to maintain the number of new ships that were being ordered, like 845s, and to get the order in for the new frigates. I mean, Bar- um, sorry to interrupt sorry. you. I mean, Baroness no. Goldie, in that session in the Lords the other day, she was at pains to portray a positive picture, saying the Navy's expanding for the first time since World War Two. Well, it's not. It's getting heavier because we've got two aircraft carriers. The answer is it's not expanding. They'll actually let there. There's been a drop of one ship in. Uh, in fact, in the last year. And looking ahead, the Type 31 frigates, the, the cheap and cheerful ones, the five that have been ordered, which is great, um, they will come off the production line not quite in time to replace the ageing Type 23s they're replacing. So there will be a gap. It's a question, a written question I put in last week. Mm. There will be a drop. So the drop in numbers of 19, will it'll drop below 19. Um, they've got... We need a rolling programme of frigate build, as we had with the 23s and before that, you know, years ago, yes. the Leander class, because yes. you can drive down the price 
And because I think our nation, with all of those responsibilities, needs about 30 frigates and destroyers. Lord West, Not all of them need top line, but you know, that's the number. Just briefly, with this defence review coming up soon, um, what piece of advice, with your experience, would you give to Dominic Cummings? I would say be very wary of cutting money that is purely for defence anymore. He seems to think that the fourth industrial revolution and cyber and uh, all of these things which are crucially important and indeed I was the first cyber security minister so I think I understand it quite well but he seems to think that's a nice cheap way of getting defence on the cheap. He's deluding himself and the one thing about defence if you get it wrong, one of your previous speakers was talking about this, we know now when the endurance was withdrawn that was a final tick that Galtieri wanted to invade the Falklands. So for a saving of 16 million over eight years, which is the removal of endurance it cost our nation three and a half billion and 300 dead people when they get defence wrong, my god They've had it. And if the Navy hadn't sought, saved Margaret Thatcher's bacon because the cuts they were going to implement hadn't happened, we would have a very different nation now because she would never have been re-elected. Because one thing that the voting public don't do, they don't forgive governments for losing wars. They might not be interested in defence, but they certainly don't forget that. Lord West, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Sit rep with Still to come, could the return of the Northern Ireland executive lead to more so-called legacy issues for military veterans in the aftermath of the Troubles? And remembering Peter Hobday, the first presenter of SITREP. So, Christopher, tell us what else is going on this week that people might have missed. Well, you've got the Rich Men's Club for a start. That's in Davos, and it's the so-called Davos uh, meeting where the richest and the most famous in the world go to discuss... What? Well, this time it's like climate change. And climate change being seen is not simply about burning trees in Australia or, or floods in, in, in other countries, in, especially in Asia. It's actually to see what it means in terms of societies changing. And when societies change, you have the opportunity for instabilities. And that is the theme of people who've got some influence in what happens. I mean, the guy that runs Google, for example, can actually make a difference in the world. There's that. And the other thing which, uh, which I think is particularly important is what's going on in, in Jerusalem, in fact, in, in, in today. And that is the memorial for, for, for the Holocaust and Auschwitz in particular. Um, and in, in, in Poland, the guy that runs Poland is not there. And he says, I'm not going. And I'm because we do this every year, he said, in Poland. We don't forget about it. The guy uh, that runs Poland is talking about defence spending, isn't he? Well, that's right. <laughs> but the important thing is, uh, he says that the Russians, and they clearly are, are rewriting the history of the uh, Second World, parts of the Second World War, and especially about uh, the Holocaust. And uh, Mr. Putin has been speaking speaking in, in this morning in in, uh, in Jerusalem about this and uh, don't buy the book because the information is wrong and the fellow in Poland's got it right. And when you consider what we're talking about, the Holocaust, uh, Auschwitz, to still be getting the disputing the, the, the conditions and, and, and what happened is a very, very doubtful uh, idea of society in in the 21st century a society which has got to they tell you at davos discuss even bigger problems and have you been glued to the tv to watch the impeachment hearings of donald trump it's wonderful it's wonderful 
Did you? I mean, what do you like the most about it? I mean, it's a it's a game of cards, isn't it? Of different sorts of cards. I think what it is 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 a reminder. We we sit down to watch the watch the congressmen, people from uh, from the House, getting up and saying, "This is why we should be doing it." We see the uh, the senators, mostly the Republicans, saying, "This is a a crock of something, but it's it's not the way to do things, and it's not legal." Uh, and there we are actually seeing that the third, only the third president is being indicted mm. in an impeachment. And it can be, we know what the result is going to be. And the worst case result is that the Senate will, will, will kick it out. But we're still watching. It's the best television. Now, the Northern Ireland executive has been re-established after a three-year power vacuum, but could the deal done bringing the DUP and Sinn Féin back to Stormont mean more so-called legacy issues from the aftermath of the Troubles? Well, former Defence Minister Mark Francois thinks there could be a problem, despite the Prime Minister's promise to, to I quote, end repeated and vexatious investigations into historical allegations against our servicemen and women, including Northern Ireland. Well, Mark Francois joins now, uh, Mark, what is your concern exactly? Uh, I'm look. The, the, important to make clear from the word go that it's a very good thing that the executive has been re-established and we've restored devolved government to Northern Ireland. So everybody's pleased to hear that. The slight risk is what did we agree with Sinn Fein in order to get them to re-enter the executive? Did we do any kind of Backstairs deal with them that would involve, you know, uh, prosecuting our veterans. Now, I very much hope that we did not. You do you know? Uh, no, uh, but I think it's important that government realise that there are many backbench MPs in the House of Commons, not just those who served in the military, but certainly involving those that did, who feel very strongly about this issue. So uh, in 2018, I coordinated a letter of over 100 Conservative MPs and a few Labour ones, to be fair, and over 50 members of the House of Lords to the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, entitled Defending Those Who Defended Us and making plain there was no way we were prepared to contemplate anything that sold our veterans down the river. Now, most of those MPs have been re-elected at this general election, so, you know, that feeling is still there. So we're what we're saying to the government, in essence, is you've said you're going to do the right thing. Mm. We hope and believe that that's correct, but there's quite a lot of us around, just in case you don't. And now you back the idea of introducing the qualified statute of limitations, meaning veterans would not be pursued if their if their alleged crime was more than ten years ago, and there's no new evidence. What's happened to that plan at the moment? Well, this this was a suggestion of the of the all party House of Commons Defence Committee, who looked into this issue in great detail. The previous committee in 2016 recommended something along these lines. And then when they looked at it again last year, I served on the committee second time round, but not first time round. They basically fleshed out that plan. And we called it a qualified, and this could be a way through, we've called it a qualified statute of limitations because it's not an amnesty. And the reason it's not an amnesty is an amnesty implies that you've broken the law, but we're going to pardon you. 
We don't believe that the vast bulk of our servicemen did anything wrong, so they don't need to be pardoned. But what it would say is that you draw a line and anything, as it were, south of that line would not be reinvestigated unless compelling new evidence came to light. And do you think that should be across the board, no matter who is accused of committing a crime during the Troubles? Well, I mean, I would like to see that apply, for instance, to members of the Ulster Defence Regiment and to members of the RUCGC, because some people have tried to pursue them, you know, for vexatious prosecutions as well. So my primary interest, if I'm honest, is army veterans. But, I, you know, we would not have done it without the UDR and the RUCGC. Mm. And let's be honest... If it hadn't have been for the sacrifice and the courage of British servicemen and those other organisations, there'd never have been a Good Friday Agreement in the first place. But Mark, if you were someone whose relative was killed and you believe a British soldier did it, yet no one has been yet held accountable, how would you be able to be coping with being told that it's too long and there will be no further investigation? Well, point one, what about if you're the relative of a serviceman who served in Northern Ireland, who's had the sort of Damocles hanging over them for years? There are families families on both sides here and secondly all of you know every lethal shot was investigated at the time so these have all been looked into already what we're keen but why to not avoid. do it across the board for any crime that's more than 10 years ago during the troubles that might have been politically motivated as well well, the, 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 no, if, if you had a statute of limitations, that would apply, as it were, both ways. But the, the difficulty at the moment is it's completely lopsided because Tony Blair, that great seeker after truth himself, gave you know many hundreds of alleged IRA terrorists, the so-called on-the-runs, mm. letters of comfort that said, in effect they couldn't be prosecuted for yes. their alleged crimes. Yes. Our guys have no such letters. Just, just briefly, Mark, before you go, um, what kind of message and response are you getting from the Defence Secretary on this at the moment, on your requests? Well, I think the MOD have always been uh, sympathetic and we've also, you know, uh, opened a dialogue with the, with the NIO. Look, our okay. aim is simple. Our aim is simple. These people defended their country and helped to bring about the Good Friday Agreement. Okay. They defended us. It's now our job as members of Parliament to defend them. Okay. That is precisely what we're going to do. All right, Marc Francois, thank you very much for your time today. Now, here is a bit of vintage BFBS. Hello and welcome to SITREP, a new weekly programme that looks at the world of defence, from the hardware to the politics. For example, we'll be reporting week by week on any new equipment. We'll be following the progress or lack of it in those arms talks. And from time to time, we'll find out what it's like on the ground in such places as the Middle East, the Caribbean or the Falklands. I'm Peter Hobday, and today SITREP considers the main issues in defence in 1983 and what they'll mean for 1984. And as you heard, that was the voice of Peter Hobday, who died this week, aged 82. He was the first presenter of SITREP and a regular presenter on the BBC's Today programme. Christopher, you worked with him. What was he like? He was tall and round. Hmm. Um, I think stout. Um, he was eloquent, uh, well-read. Uh, his first wife, who died, uh, was Russian. And he met her in Fontainebleau when he was working for NATO. So his background was very good in European affairs. Uh, I heard him do a, an interview once on the Today programme. I was there at the time. 
And this guy came up, and it was quite clear he didn't speak English. So, and he spoke idiomatic French, Algerian French. And so Peter just did the interview and did a simultaneous translation. And I said to him afterwards, I said, it's very clever, Peter. It's very clever. What did he actually say? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He said, but it was good radio, wasn't it? And there's uh, Peter for you, a man with a sense of humour as well. What do you, how was your working relationship with him? Oh, not bad at all. Um, after uh, we did something, we'd probably wander over to the pub for a... I mean, eleven o'clock. So I suppose it would have eleven. been eleven. So I suppose it would have been a brandy and a, maybe a maybe a bag of crisps, and then down to the club, which we were both members of, uh, for lunch. But those were the days when you did that sort of thing, when you were out to lunch meant it was gone ten o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> You're often out to lunch, aren't you? <laughs> Bad influence he was on you. Or on my way home. What was it he said? To, he used to criticise you, though, sort of in a friendly way, didn't he? Oh, he once said to me, he said, you're talking a lot of rubbish. And he said it in <laughs> such a nice way um, that I believed him. And it was only later on when I said, Peter, I said, I said that wasn't, that was, that was quite all right. And he said, what, what was that? And he'd forgotten all about it. Let me tell you something more, uh, more seriously about this. I mean, Peter was a great broadcaster, a tremendous broadcaster. And when he got to a certain age, uh, 60... Uh, the BBC kicked him off the Today programme, and that was very sad. The Daily Mail said, save save him for the nation. And they saved him for the nation and gave him a, a radio programme on, on Radio 3 with classical music. And that is all we have got time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Do join the conversation on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. And today, we'll leave the last words to Peter Hobday. And that's it from SITREP and me, Peter Hobday. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>